This is Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast, recorded Thursday, March 14, 2013. I'm Jack Hodgson, and joining me are the UCAP gang from Wichita, Kansas, Dave Higdon. Part of that, just because of the explosion in use as lithium technology has offered various kind of architectures and, and, and combinations of chemistry to be used. And from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida, Jeb Burnside. Yeah, they flew it nonstop from Indiana to Honolulu. Uh-huh. Right? And then flew it from Honolulu to Guam. Okay. And then flew it from Guam to Jacksonville. It was a 36-hour flight. This time on UCAP, all sorts of action at New York's JFK airport. Two airliners have a fender bender on the taxiway and reports of a drone near miss on final. The 787s may soon be back in the air, and we urge you to visit the DC-3 airports around the U.S. Capitol. All this and more on Uncontrolled Airspace, Boeing 380. Yeah. Let me open some links here. Two so jets walk into a bar. Yeah, two jets walk into a bar. <laughs> well, yeah, something like that, huh? So what was the story with this? These two airplanes uh, bumped into each other uh, on uh, on the ta- well, just, just taxiway, technically, but just off of the ramp, actually on the ramp, right? The... What one had pushed back and then had a problem and just so paused oh. away from the gate, away from the jetway, and then another one was rolling by and clipped its tail. Right? Is that what happened? Um, that's the way it plays. Yeah, yeah that's, that's basically the way it plays. It's it's hard to tell what parts of what airplane collided with the other, except that this article says the JetBlue plane suffered some damage to its rudder. Uh, I'm guessing wingtip to rudder kind of thing. That's what I imagined as yeah. well. Yeah. So, uh, it's, Gee, that's not the first time that's happened. Yeah, I know, huh? And uh, you know, I, I keep coming back to this, but this is the, these are the examples that I want to tell all of my seatmates about when I'm flying the airlines. You know, <laughs> and uh, and you know, we're we've we've landed and we're taxiing to the gate, and you can hear everybody unclipping their seatbelts, and I'm going, did you guys not see the uh, the uh, the Boeing three eight uh, the, the Airbus three eighty the Boeing the Boeing three eighty There's the title of this episode. Yeah, I know the Boeing three eighty <laughs> the Airbus three eighty that uh, that spun around the the, the uh, regional jet that time. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, you should just you should just put that on your phone. I should I should exactly do that. Available. I should absolutely do that. Say here, you want to see a video? Look at this. Yeah, this is why you should not put. Uh, unbuckle your seatbelt before uh-huh. we're safely at the gate. Yeah. So another thing I thought was interesting about this uh, this JFK, uh, 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 you know, I don't know what you want to call it, Fet- not a fender bender. What would it be? It would be a uh, it'd be a wingtip ipper round collision. Yeah, but I want it. Okay, that's what it is. <laughs> You're not working with me here, David. You're not working with me. <laughs> um, so uh, let's see. Now I'm reading it again. What what was it that caught, what caught my attention was that they talked a lot about the jet blue aircraft. Let's call it let's call it ramp rash. Ramp rash. Okay, that's okay. Yeah, okay, but that's I was going from something you know, a little more more uh, outrageous than that. Anyways, the uh, so there's a lot of there's quotes from jet blue and there's all this stuff. So the jet blue was the aircraft. Uh, Correct me if I've got this wrong, but JetBlue was the one that was pushing back from the gate and had some sort of problem with the tug or with the tow bar or something like that, and so they had to pause. Um, and then it was a an Air India aircraft that was taxiing by, and apparently, and what we're envisioning is that the Air India wingtip probably collided with the JetBlue rudder. There's nothing in this article from Air India. They just don't even want to be part of this, apparently. Yeah, just slap some 100-knot tape on it and, and funnel it to New Delhi. I mean, yeah. what the so, I mean, we don't even know. Do we know whether it was the Air India aircraft inbound or outbound? Did it? Uh... Don't know that. Don't know. Uh, 
uh, if what type it was. For yeah, example. this was that would a, be interesting. This was a week or so ago, Jeb. Are you able to do your NTSB uh, database magic here? And uh, yeah, let's let's see. I don't know that it'd be on. Well, I don't know. Let's. let's I, I think it's uh, largely uh, a philosophical thing, man. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, don't have a, but when is <laughs> don't don't have a cow, man. When has this ever stopped us in the past? All right, well, you know, that. inquiring minds, right? You know, we, we don't know what happened here. So let's Jeb give Jeb a second, and he'll find it. Yeah, my my internet's running a little slow. Well, my browser's running like not too fast this morning anyway. No, because I have like you know four instances of it of it open, and I don't know maybe thirty pages open. Let's see here. This is March. Nothing on the NTSB site. Really? Which doesn't surprise me because this is really an incident, not an accident. Um, but I would imagine that the dollar value exceeded whatever the go- whatever the threshold might be. Dollar value is isn't really the isn't no substantial damage is the uh, <laughs> is and that is, is defined further by the uh, no seriously that's interesting. What is it? Substantial damage and it's. Know, I'll tell you what. While I'm googling, while I'm doing this, you Google uh, fourteen CFR eight thirty. Fourteen CFR eight thirty. Interesting that you know that that uh, in your head. Uh, that TSB reg is like saying that you know ninety one covers private operations. Notification Part eight thirty notification reporting of aircraft accident or incidents and overdue aircraft and preservation of aircraft wreckage, mail, cargo, and records. Somebody has to go to the hospital or the morgue. Uh, Aircraft has to suffer substantial damage. Then substantial damage is further defined. Well, they've got incident. Incident is an occurrence other than an accident associated with the operation of an aircraft which affects or could affect the safety of operations. Uh, That's one of those careless and reckless kinds of things. It can mean just about whatever you want it to mean. Substantial damage means damage or failure which adversely affects the structural strength, performance, or flight characteristics of the aircraft and which would normally require major repair or replacement of the affected component. Well, there you go. Come on. You know, you, you now, that said, I would think smacking the rudder on an, RG, on a, on an Airbus would... would, um, would count which would adversely affect the flight characteristics yes right so but i uh, I don't know nothing in ntsb huh i just work here nothing on ntsb but that's uh, that doesn't mean a thing in the sense that um that they might not may not have caught up with uh okay well maybe we'll come back to this maybe we won't but but we'll see yeah yeah see the faa's changed their system around really yeah, it used to be just some some HTML pages and, and yada yada. Now they've done this big database thing, and you got to search it and yada yada. So and there's nothing in there on initial search okay. that happened that happened at, at JFK in the last six weeks. All uh, right. So I don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. On a more serious note here, um, 
So, uh, I don't know how to put this uh, respectfully, uh, but uh, we are nearing the end of the Craig Fuller era at AOPA. And uh, that happened just after we recorded our last episode, uh, that Craig Fuller announced that he was uh, stepping down as uh, the head guy. I can never remember. Is he president or CEO? President, or President and CEO. President and CEO of, uh, of AOPA. And uh, um, this is kind of an interesting thing. Um, I, I think a lot of people are reading things into this. And and I don't know whether you guys have any inside information that you're able to share, um, but you know, w- w- this is almost a continuation of the fact that EAA's president stepped down um, after a somewhat rocky tenure. And it's, uh, it's been kind. Of, it, it's, that's been the strongest reaction I've heard in terms of discussion and, and you know, grapevine chatter has been people relating the the two as having equally unusual feel to them, uh, for lack of a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. But I don't have anything specific inside, and I've talked to a couple of folks uh, that goes beyond what the uh, what the association released in announcing that uh, Mr. Fuller was not staying beyond his first five-year contract. That's, that's the way it reads. Mm-hmm. Has it really been five years? I guess I didn't realize that. That's, uh, it has, well, it's been, been four. It, it's it, been four plus, and um, uh, I don't know. Well, according to, and, and there's a link here from our, our list thingy, uh, according to an article on uh, uh, AOPA's webpage dated, um, well, dated 2008, Fuller is to take office on January 1, 2009. Um, a five-year contract would put January 1, 2014 yeah. as his, his last day. So on one sense, you could say, you know, Fuller is saying, look, hey, guys, uh, when my five years is up, I'm out of here. And giving the, the organization plenty of time to find a replacement. Mm-hmm. And, and so we aren't hearing any buzz on how they're going to go with, with, uh, with a replacement, whether they're going to try and change tracks or whether they're, you know... Um, I would expect pretty much whatever AOPA has been doing and was planning on doing uh, to continue. Uh, and the new guy will come in and get briefed and have some transition time, hopefully, with Mr. with Mr. Fuller, uh, like Mr. Fuller had when he shadowed Phil Boyer for, uh, I don't mm-hmm. know, two, three months uh, before the start of his time. Yeah. Uh, well, let me put it this way then. Um, we, although we have not um, uh, abandoned our support of AOPA over the these four years, we've we here at Uncontrolled Airspace have been a little bit vocal about our our discontent with some of the changes. Um, do you think that uh, this is a step in the right direction in that regard? Have they have have those changes calmed down over the last couple of years? Maybe even. <laughs> You ask questions. What, like what else Matthews. is on? Use. What else is on the list? <laughs> okay, um, I take it we're all three still members of AOPA, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 it, I, I, I'll you know volunteer this. I think I have before. Uh, I just renewed like mm-hmm. last week. Okay, uh, and it was the closest I've come yet to not renewing. Yeah. Uh, and I think in the back of my mind, subconsciously, psychologically, uh, knowing that 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 leadership is about to change, uh, probably is what pushed me over the top to renewing. 
Mm-hmm. Again, so yeah. Well, full disclosure, and Jeb knows this. I don't think Dave does. Um, I actually applied for a job in the last six months at AOPA. Uh, they uh, uh, they uh, uh, published a, a, a help wanted or a, a you know hiring notice for a for the, uh, the what do they call it the manager of the the uh, flying club program. And uh, reading the job description, what they were looking for, just kind of said, well, this is me. You know, it was like events and it was pilot groups and it was grassroots and it was right. just a lot of things. It sounded very appealing. And uh, although I haven't worked in a, uh, in a kind of nine to five you know, situation in a long time, I found the idea somewhat appealing and I wanted to explore it. And, uh, and so I threw my hat in the ring and uh, um, it didn't go very far, quite frankly. But, uh, um, you know, so, uh, so damn it, I'm quitting my OPM membership. No, 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 no. But, uh, you know, I, I, so, you know, I haven't, haven't left my support of AOP behind either. And, uh, um, and, and quite frankly, I was not the biggest fan of Craig Fuller as the president over there. Um, but, uh, but nevertheless, the organization's always been important. I think we're on record of having had some interesting things to observations and different takes on some of the programs that have initiated under Mr. Fuller's tenure. Stop whining uh, about it. You know, <laughs> you think, we, okay. Yeah, we 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 know that other groups have looked at doing some of the same things, and 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 then uh, listening to public reaction, decided against uh, mirroring some of those same things. So I think that's pretty much testament by itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's a story um, that's. I'm sorry. Real, do you want to real quickly? Do, yeah. Oh, two things, real quickly. Um, one, I did find uh, in the FA database. Um, this Air India JetBlue thing. The narrative, first of all, it was an Air India 7, uh, I'm sorry, Boeing 777. Um, it says Air India B777 wingtip struck the tail of a JetBlue A320. Uh, no injuries, da 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 da. So uh, that's, uh, that's all we know. So about. it was a 777 and a 320. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. And it was daylight hours. So. Um, uh, wing walking um, um, is more important than ever at, at, at JFK. Um, well, obviously, that, in this case, they could have used some some tail walking, which I think is the you know the yeah well the, the taxiing triple seven wouldn't have had wing walkers under any circumstance, um, and uh, you know nobody was watching yeah. the tail apparently. You know, no one was watching the tail apparently. And you know, the flip side of which is, if you've got a tail sticking out, you're trying to push back. Um, I would, and I don't know the geometry there, which gates and, and where the taxiway stripe is, and yada yada yada. But it would seem that uh, you got a you got an aircraft that's obviously not at the gate. It's, um, you know, according to to the narrative that we saw in that uh, that news article, um, they were trying to disconnect the tow bar. So would kind of lead me to conclude that the aircraft was in position to taxi on its own, which means fairly far back from the gate itself. Hmm. Okay. Um, And, you know, a little, so I don't know, you know. See, I didn't uh, get that. uh, I didn't get that, Jeb. From the description, what I got, and and you could be totally right, but what I got uh, is that the, uh, is that the pushback was not completed and that they had this pause in the middle of the pushback because there was some problem with the bar. I don't know, maybe it was becoming unlatched or I don't know what, but, uh, um, I mean, let me ask you this. About, the, the, three, the 320 had become temporarily disabled due to a problem with its tow bar and was sitting near a gate 
when it would yeah. have bumped by an air yeah. India aircraft. Well, let me let's return to that story for just a second here, and and so now you tell us it's a triple seven was the uh, well Air India aircraft, right? Um, a, a larger than than average aircraft um, at our at our airliner airports um and the 380 that we were joking about that clipped the uh, the, the the regional jet also a larger than average aircraft uh, is the infrastructure at these airports not big enough anymore for these big airplanes is well, that part big, of the problem there was a there was a lot of talk um talk discussion uh news articles whatever about the 380 when it was going to service um how many airports are there around the world at which it can be accommodated um, what some airports are having to do to uh, uh, change their infrastructure around to accommodate it, things like that. Um, clearly, uh, the 380, you know, you know, isn't going to fit uh, in some airports. We 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 saw, for example, up up close and personal, uh, the 380 at Oshkosh a couple of years ago. Um, it's a big. It's a big thing. airplane, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know it's it's tall for one thing. So you've got you know jetway. Uh, um, does it fit the jetway? Kind of thing. You've got uh, wingspan. Uh, can it taxi uh, in certain areas of the airport? And I'm sure there are certain airports at which it routinely operates where it cannot taxi. Uh, some taxiways it cannot use, mm-hmm. uh, whether for weight issues or for wingspan issues or or maybe just turn radius issues. So, yeah, there there it's it's um, it's a problem, but it's obviously I think um, uh, been resolved in in some ways by by uh, uh, imposing certain restrictions or limitations on its on its uh, ground operations at various well, airports. From from the from the center line of a triple seven outboard to the nearest wingtip is a half inch short of a hundred feet. Okay. It's way behind where the drivers sit. Uh, the, uh, the non-taxing airplane that wouldn't necessarily have to have been out of position from a gate fully for it to be at risk of being hit by something with right. a 200-foot wingspan. Or yeah. worse, if it was a 200LR, uh, that's got a 212-foot wingspan. Right, right. You know, it, it just gets bigger than that. Uh, the A380, uh, if I remember right, there was an incident where it clipped a building. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. You know. So... Uh, the yeah. industry has yeah. been through this before, but sometimes you wonder whether they remember. Hmm. Well, yeah. and and you know, they had the same problems with the DC three. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, they, you know, is the runway it's, long enough? Is the do we have stairs that'll you know, or, or not the DC three because it had kind of had its own stairs, but say the DC four. You know, uh, uh, do we have stairs that'll reach the the door? You know, think. You know, Oh, and there's nothing, the DC seven, yeah. a constellation. Right. right. Uh, then the uh, then the O seven and the DC uh, DC eight. Uh, the another big game changer was the first jumbo, the seven forty seven. Sure. sure. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the reasons you know they put in stairs at the backs of the seven twenty seven. Yeah. So that yeah. they you know at at these smaller fields where. 
you know, they didn't have the infrastructure available that they could board the airplane. Yeah, yeah. I, I always liked that, getting on that way, knowing the first-class passengers had the farthest to walk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, progress, it's a mother, huh? Yeah, it's a mother. So back to back to AOPA. Oh, um, oh okay, all right. Yeah, uh, so that's not a job I want. That's not a job that, that I would think too many people want. Um, you've got... Um, an organization that uh, yeah, a lot of changes going on in the industry, um, a lot of um, um, thrust and drag um, from the economy, from uh, uh, an aging uh, constituency, uh, a fundamentally changing constituency. Um, you've got you know the old guard who who is is in the tube and rag and, and EAA is kind of the poster child here um um where you've got people who are who are diehard home builders um and they're complaining every time that there's uh uh some article in the magazine about store bought airplanes or about certified avionics or or things like that um, AOPA is is in many ways the same in that you're basically talking about the same kinds of constituents. You're talking about uh, people who are into flying um, uh, ultralights or or legacy LSAs um, around the patch, and that's really all they care about. Versus the guy who uh, is in a TBM 850 or a PC 12 and and uh, um, you know, is, is driving into flight levels. You've got all this kind of, of competitive um, um, policy concerns. You've got uh, competition for services for these uh, different kinds types of members. Um, you've got uh, increasing costs, um, a um, um, shrinking membership base, uh, you've got all kinds of, of these little things going on, and it's not a job for the faint-hearted. Um, I can certainly see where um, uh, Fuller, for whatever reasons, decided he didn't want to play this game anymore, um, and you know has decided to pull that plug and, and do it in an orderly fashion. I don't know anything more about it than that. It could be that the board at AOPA decided to pull this plug, and this is, you know, a, a well-orchestrated uh, uh, changing of the guard. Uh, it could be something that we don't know anything about, but will eventually come out. I don't know. Yeah, but so from what you just said, Jeb, I, I'm not clear. You did or did not put your resume in for the job? I have not, and <laughs> okay. will not. Uh, All right. I, ain't, I ain't moving to Frederick for one thing. Okay. Hi, this is Jack Hodgson of the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast. Jeb and Dave are here with me, but they are speechless with excitement about how close we're getting to this spring's Sun and Fun fly-in. Just like we have for a few years now, we'll be working with the gang at Sun and Fun Radio to produce two full episodes from the grounds of the fly-in. Not only will those episodes go out on our regular internet feed, but they'll be broadcast live on Sun and Fun Radio's AM frequency and their internet stream. Check the UCAP homepage for details on the times of our shows and information on how you can listen in live. And if you're at the fly-in, please stop by and say hi. We can't wait to get back together with our friends down in Lakeland and kick off the flying season with this year's spring break for pilots at the Sun and Fun Fly-In. Dave and Jeb, anything you'd like to add to that? Nope, still speechless. 
So, David, you put it kind of well. You said, so this is how it begins. Huh? We uh, had a, a drone sighting at uh, JFK. This was all quite exciting for a little while. I don't think they've tracked this aircraft down. But uh, um, I, I don't I, – I, I think they have. You think they have? Uh, oh, I think they have. Uh, <laughs> you don't think – wait, <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. Did I miss a news story? It wasn't in the news, was it? Not that I've seen. Yeah, okay. Not, not, you don't think that they've see. tracked this guy? Come on. This was some hobbyist with a quadcopter that got a little oh, carried it was, away. It was NYPD. Okay. You say so? Yeah. It was NYPD. It was NYPD? Yeah. Where does that come from? Me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Just to be clear here, we're speculating now. We don't... You think that this was... Oh, well, that that's... I like that story a lot. I, I, I don't know if there's any truth to it, but I like it a lot. I, I, I think this was some agency's uh, chest run or, or regular mission, uh, checking out their machinery in, in new airspace and... On final to JFK? Oops, on, oops. on final to JFK? What were they thinking? I don't know. So anybody who doesn't know this story, right? Let me see if I got this right. An aircraft, I don't know what airline, but an aircraft was on final for one of the runways at JFK when he reported that he observed a drone. That's I think I believe that's what he called it. The, the, the ATC, the radio traffic, has, has been on the net. Um, our, our friend Dave Pasco from uh, LiveATC.net, his organization caught it, and uh, and their recording has been, uh, been heard a number of different times. Um, the airline pilot said, I just, something along the lines of, I just passed by a drone um, at my altitude, and he was like pretty high, right? He's four or five thousand feet. Well, pretty high by my little. Well, no, 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 no. Let's what? See, let's back up. All According right. to the Avionics Today story, to which we're linking here on the on the list. Yeah. Um, it, first of all, crew. Uh, it says pilot here, but I'll say crew of an of Italian carrier Alitalia. Okay. Uh, while approaching JFK, um, said. Came within 200 feet of the UAV. The Alitalia plane was approximately 1,750 feet. Okay, oh, 1,700 feet. Okay, I stand corrected. Yeah. So, yeah. so it was on approach, basically. Now, um, depending on which runways were in operation at JFK, could have been out over some water, could have been over the city. So right. you don't think it was on final? You think it was just something? No, I think on... it was on final. Oh, okay, all right. At 1,700 feet? Yeah, yeah right. I believe it was he, on yeah, final. He, he, he best be on final. He's like... You know, three or four miles from the runway. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so you got that going on. So you know, figure out. You know, I'm not going to bother pulling up a map of JFK here, but he probably over the city uh, in some fashion, or or uh, they, they got the runways aligned. The main runways there are uh, one three and three one, I believe. Um, so it, it's fairly easy to figure out where um, they were probably trying to operate this UAV. But again, I think it's probably over the city. Mm-hmm. So the part of it now and and what I, I read this story a couple of days ago at that time, I don't I didn't read of any other aircraft that saw this drone. Um, the uh, the, the controllers were calling it out to just about everybody who was on this approach. Um, and nobody that I heard said, yeah, we saw it, too. So there was just the one sighting of it. And. And I began to think that maybe this wasn't real, all right? Because I picture this, okay? So this aircraft, this airliner aircraft, is on, you know, on on final, and and what are they? What are, how, what's their airspeed on final? You know, they're probably going a hundred and. 200 yeah, knots, doing, 100, probably doing one buck fifty. 150 uh, knots. Yeah. So they're cruising along at 150 knots, and they pass 200 feet away from something that's less than two feet in diameter. 
I'm having a hard we, time. That do we know it's less than two feet in diameter? I. Well, it's, it's, so the unmanned it, aircraft was described as black with four propellers. Yeah, you know now, that does sound like a quad rotor. Yeah, so it's a quadcopter. I, I acknowledge that we don't know how big it was. I just, you know, the ones that we've ever seen are not very big. And I just find it hard to believe that this guy actually saw this thing um, going that fast because it was probably relatively stationary, and uh, which I guess makes it... Uh, now, that's way out in conjecture. Later. Why? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, I that mean, it, it was is. probably stationary? Yeah. What? <laughs> On what... what? Where, because quadcopters often are stationary. Okay, oh, you're right. So I'm based on an assumption. You're making another assumption that hey. now challenges the eyewitness who gave a pretty detailed inspection. Or, I'm sorry, description, and is more along the lines of what I would call an expert observer. Okay, you're going to make me open the story and look at it again. All right, I will. <laughs> uh, oh, it's a video. Hang on here. I need to stop it from playing. I'm not, I'm not watching any video. Yeah, I just need to stop it here. So it, was there a news story? I didn't see a news story. Let's see. What's the, well, other, the, link? the other link we've got here? Yeah, okay. The link here, here's is it. from Avionics Magazine. Yep. And this, um, I would guess, probably from an AP story or something like that. Um, don't know. But I, and, and while, we're, while we're talking, I did pull up a Google map of, of JFK. And um, let's see, five, six miles out uh, on final for the one threes, you'd be over lower Manhattan. Um, uh, closer in, you'd be over the community of Ridgewood. Um, coming in for the three ones, um, four or five miles out, you'd be right over the beach. Um, and further out, you'd be over the water. So I, I suspect he was. They were using uh, the one threes, <clears throat> and um, there you go. Well, I've seen. I'm seeing news stories from CNN and and all over the place on this, and uh, I I don't know. I just get this feeling that it's, they know who it was and they know who it is, and somebody's been properly admonished, and they're going to move it in. A, a different direction, and we'll never hear about what it was or what it was doing there. Okay, that's probably that's probably correct. Now, is this the time to segue into talking about the, the ASRS uh, callback edition? Talking about drones? yes, yes, okay. because callback um, have published uh, is an entire ep- entire episode, entire issue uh, on the subject of uh, USVs, UAVs. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, um, who posted this to the list? I think David probably. Let's see. Well, it's, it oh, com- I did. Comes out of, <laughs> com- yeah, yeah, comes out of the forums. Uh, thanks to Cozy One Seventy One BH, a listener, and he uh, has a PDF link to the um, to the uh, ASRS uh, um, uh, callback issue itself. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, and I'm not taking any credit here for for this being uh, the subject of this uh, this particular issue of callback. But it had been several weeks before this hit the streets that I was doing some research uh, and ended up writing an editorial for Aviation Safety, like in the the January or or, um, uh, February issue, uh, about drones and about these some of these specific uh, encounters. There were uh, uh, three that I had highlighted in an editorial uh, in that issue of the magazine that had occurred well within the last year. And some of them are listed in this uh, in this issue of callback. So, um, 
if you if you go into the callback database, um, I'm sorry, the ASRS database, which is a basically a, a compilation of all of the uh, um, events that have occurred that have made it that um, um, pilots, controllers, operators have submitted to to NASA, uh, and just search for the uh, uh, string UAV or, or something like that, you'll pop up with stuff going back to 08. Um, relative to uh, people who have who have entered uh, um, uh, who have filed reports, I should say. Um, so on one level, there's nothing new here. On another level, uh, it's it's starting to get interesting uh, because you've got in one instance you've got a guy in a Cirrus <coughs> uh, um, flying an approach in 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 real you know, IMC conditions, which of course are variable. But flying a, a flying the approach into uh, I don't think it was Shannon. It was uh, it's an airport south uh, of D.C. Uh, and it encountered uh, two or three foot long, two or three foot wide uh, uh, UAV on the approach. Uh, you've got um, UAVs just hey you know I, uh, for some we real having a little bit of a problem here with the operation of the UAV. So we're going to arbitrarily. Uh, descend it out of flight level one nine zero, and we're not going to tell anybody. Hmm. Uh, I don't know which is more disturbing that these UAVs are operating on airways at at one nine zero, or they're not telling anybody. Hmm. Yeah, about it. So I, uh, the whole thing just makes my hair hurt, um, and uh, it's just a matter of time before one of these smacks into a passenger carrying aircraft. <laughs> Um, yeah, David. My head goes boom. Yeah, uh, and has ever since this discussion started back when Congress started to stick its inexpert uh, opinions into how this should be handled and how quickly, and with no basis in reality except people with money to spend saw a way to make money. And spent it on convincing some members of Congress that the FAA was really the holdup here to bold new growth industry. And so we've got a whole rush, not only at the FAA side, to try to create regulations and policies to accommodate these things, but by people, entrepreneurs, developers, large companies, small companies, to jump on this bandwagon and get in on the gold mine early. Uh, before there really are uh, controls that a lot of them understand. There are controls that we understand. But a lot of these folks aren't coming into this with aviation backgrounds. They're coming into this with uh, business speculation and business development backgrounds, and they don't need to know anything about aviation. They need, just need to know how to develop a product and make it market. Uh and they don't really care about aviation. That's that's really disturbing to me. And we've contended, we've had this position going way back. Until these things can be proven, demonstrated in a certification program comparable to a regular aircraft, that they are capable of autonomous sea and avoid 
and can be seen by our collision avoidance systems that they should be kept the hell out of our airspace. Yeah, well, this is not a news story. We're going to move on here, but I just want to point out this is obviously not a news story. Um, in September of 2006, uh, basically a little over six years ago, in episode number three of this podcast, we talked about a story, uh, the show notes say UAVs in the national airspace. And although there's not a link here, as I recall, uh, there was a story in the news at the time about some, I believe it was a, either a military or just plain uh, government official who was warning that it was just a matter of time before we were going to have to allow UAVs in the national airspace. So uh, we've been talking about it for a long time, and, and you're right. It's scary. It's maybe just a matter of time before one of these things bumps into something important. Oh, and then there's going to be this jump up and down and people breaking their jaws, jerking their knees, trying to do something that should be thought out as as much as this wasn't thought out. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on here. So are the uh, 787s ungrounded yet? Or, or I, I've, I've been traveling the last few days and I'm kind of behind on the news yeah. here, but... Uh, I, I, as I understand it, there's now a, a, a plan that's been basically blessed and uh, for these batteries. What do you guys tell me about this story? There's a plan. There's a design. First off, there's a design for a new architecture for the main battery. The, the battery that's a problem that uh, supposedly uh, creates greater separation between the cells and will help stop the heat buildup and heat runaway that led to the whole thing melting down, catching fire, and just feeding it on itself. Uh, the FAA has looked at and uh, apparently approved a, a program for Boeing and the battery maker to test the solution and a new container and... Uh, I'm sure some new programming on the charging electronics uh, to better detect and shut down current when there begins to be a problem showing up. Uh, so they're on their way. They now have a road map back into the airways. Now they got to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to add to this? Is this uh yeah, I would I would agree with with uh, uh, Dave. Uh, apparently, the the uh, manufacturer uh, has submitted uh, you know a plan for for uh, recertification of this. Uh, FAA has agreed to it. Now the plan has to be implemented. Um, I guess the only thing that that kind of I'm scratching my head over is this has taken what would seem to be a god awful long time for something as relatively simple as a battery. Well, I I, 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 I think you, I, I think you, you, you're onto something there. But I'm not sure that I, I, I've developed a deeper appreciation for the complexity of these yeah. lithium compound, lithium-based battery compounds, and the different designs. I had no idea there were so many different ways to use lithium to make electricity, uh, and apparently some of them have dramatically different characteristics than others. Uh, I, what struck me here was the pretty apparent, right from the top, uh, dedication on Boeing's part to sticking with uh, some kind of lithium battery. Yeah. And rather than punting and going back to uh, nickel metal hydride or uh, something older uh, that's going to be considerably larger and heavier uh, 
and less efficient long term, uh, they decided to stick it out. And yeah. it'd be good if it worked for them. Cessna took kind of the opposite approach when they had problems with lithiums. Uh, but now I think that's all being reexamined. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, Boeing is is dedicated to to using this technology, and there's probably some very good reasons. Um, energy density, um, and probably more of a hassle to try to recertify uh, a different battery chemistry, et cetera, et cetera. Um, again, though, it just kind of strikes me as it's just taken a while. It's taken longer than than perhaps it, it uh, I would have expected. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Oh, no doubt, too. And it's been expensive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I, especially for the operators. Right. I'm sure Boeing's picking up a lot of this. You know, they got all this downtime. They got these, these, uh, uh, these Boeing 380s sitting around. <laughs> I, I couldn't find out whether there was any truth to the rumor that uh, they're they're offering free lifetime battery exchanges. That's but. right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have to wonder whether these whether this lithium technology lithium battery technology is a dead end, and they're going to change tracks at some point. You're just hearing so many problems. You know, speaking as a technologist, I I, I kind of agree with what david said that that batteries are just an amazingly complicated thing these days and you know we know from from electronic gadgets that batteries are kind of the are one of the big weak links these days and uh, and a lot of smart people are spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to store electricity in in well, they're, right. they're also like genuine magic okay yeah mm-hmm. I, I mean i'm i'm handling my my little droid razor right now okay and it, I take it out of the case, and the whole thing is like not a half inch thick, and it's got all these electronics to make it work. But then it's got enough battery power on it to run it for about three days, or to talk continuously for about nine hours. Yeah, mm-hmm. and where? Well, if you, I mean, I don't know about that particular device, but I know, for example, the iPads are somewhat famous for the fact that if you actually open up an iPad, it's like three quarters battery. The volume inside that case is like three quarters battery. Um, And uh, that's, you know, and and a big reason why these things have gotten so much smaller, thinner is because of the improvements in the battery technology. Yeah. No, but see, but I I ha- I'm still wondering whether lithium is going to whether we're going to want to turn away from lithium, you know, because you hear all these stories about these lithium batteries um, you know, catching fire. I mean, just really misbehaving. You know, and this well, has been going on for a while, too. I know. Yeah, it has. <clears throat> you know, listener Biggles 71 in the forums uh, calls our attention to a uh, an incident that he was somewhat of an eyewitness to um, many years ago. Let's see, what's the date on this? 2010, I guess, not so long ago, uh, where uh, he wit- he was uh, he was uh, in living in Dubai, and he witnessed a, a 747, which turned out to be a cargo 747, fly very, very low over his home uh, and ultimately crash nearby uh, and uh, um, he says that he, he admits that the re- final report is not out but he claims that it is clear that a, that a cargo fire more than likely started by lithium batteries uh, started the whole chain of events that brought down that 7-4 on a much more mundane level um, I scared the living daylights out of me that the battery on one of my laptop computers uh, about a year ago started bulging I mean really really no 
noticeably bulging to the point where it popped the the cover off the bottom of the laptop. Uh, oh, that's not good. <laughs> to the point where it was it was pressing. It, so the battery is located underneath the touchpad, and suddenly the and the touchpad has a physical click to it. It actually moves. And uh, one of the first symptoms I had was that I could no longer click the touchpad, and it turned out that was because the battery was pressing against the bottom of the touchpad and restricting the motion. And so when I finally discovered that this battery was bulging like this, I mean, one of the seams on the battery was starting to separate. The battery contain the battery, uh, uh, you know, container itself was starting to separate and open up, and it scared the living daylights out of me. I'm thinking this thing could catch fire at any moment. All right, I mean, I I made an appointment with the uh, with the computer support people to go show them this, and I literally stored the battery separate from everything else in my car in case I needed to somehow eject it. So it's, I mean, I was really worried. Um, and uh, it never did catch on fire. And uh, um, and I replaced it. The temperature that it reaches by the time it does that is if you want to keep your fingers, don't touch. Yeah, and it was not you know overtly. I mean, it was warm, but it wasn't like hot. It wasn't dangerously hot. But nevertheless, I had heard stories about these. Long story short, the you know you hear more and more stories about lithium battery technology not working or having these these nasty side effects. And, well, uh, it's just been going on so long, Jack, that uh, air safety regulations have evolved to the point now where it's banned cargo. Yeah. Okay, and go to the post office and take a look at prohibited items, hazardous items uh, that you're not allowed to ship via U.S. post office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's got to go ground. It's got to go, uh, you, you know, it will, let's put it way. It will hold its charge while it's getting there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, this goes back a ways. I mean, there was a video, I'm going to say six, eight years ago. Of uh, it was in Japan where this guy was sitting at a table, and all of a sudden just jumped up and his 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 laptop's on fire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe we're being alarmist. Maybe this isn't a big deal. But I just hear more and more of these stories, and it makes me wonder. Large and small, just disturbing stories about this mm-hmm. this battery well, part, technology. Part of that just because of the explosion in use as lithium technology has offered various kind of architectures and, and, and combinations of chemistry to be used uh, and uh, uh, proliferated through not only replacement cells for some use, like you can get camera batteries now that are lithium-based, double uh, A's and, and so forth, uh, but also just the explosion in devices that use batteries. Yeah, and more and more of those devices are really only viable through the compact uh, and high dense, high energy density nature of these batteries. Uh, they're not going to work, or not going to work well enough w- with some of the older technologies. So, I expect to hear more, not less, for a while, and then it'll settle down. Yeah. 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 Did you really say explosion in use? He David? did. He did. Yeah. He did. Oh, okay. All right. I just wanted to make sure I didn't imagine that. Hurry up, people. We're losing the light. Gather around. Gather around. Okay. This is the scene where the members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. In this scene, their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the organizations they work with. So your motivation for this scene is... Anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. 
you should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. Of course you knew that, right? Because it's in the script. Okay, places everybody. Lights. Quiet on set. Let's get it in this take this time. Camera rolling. Audio. Speed. And marker. UCAP disclaimer. Scene 23, take four. And action. We here at the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. Thank you. We've got a handful of uh, what I, th- I think are shorter items here, sort of follow-ups from things we've talked about in the past. Uh, the first one's not exactly a follow-up. David, or not David, Jeb, you've spoken uh, occasionally, uh, both off and online, about David Wartofsky um, of Potomac Airfield. What's the story going on here? What's uh, Dave put this on the list, but uh, Jeb, Dave, do you know Dave Wartofsky as well? Or No, and I tried to get down there when we were in D.C. Saturday, and the logistics, since we didn't rent a car, we were using metro and cabs. Yeah. Uh, Jeb, does does Wartofsky own Potomac Airfield or simply manage it, or what's that? He owns it. He owns it. it. One of the uh, uh, infamous, infamous because Jeb calls it this, the D.C. three airports, the the three uh, smaller airports that are within the... uh, the Washington D.C. restricted area, and uh, what's uh, Wartowski up to here now, Dave? Basically, it, oh, Jeb, go ahead. If you know no, the story, Dave, no, 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 Dave, go ahead. You, you, Dave posted it. Yeah, Dave, what's on? What's going on? Oh, I just thought he he, he posted a uh, letter that he uh, uh, submitted to the Department of Transportation uh, and the FAA, arguing for the uh, uh, for the rescinding third class medical requirements under the terms that uh, AOPA and EAA proposed in a joint petition. And, damn, he's just, he just makes so much sense. He uses fiscal arguments more than safety arguments and the lack of evidence that third-class medicals are actually preventing accidents due to medical uh, uh, incapacitation. And uh, Wartowski bases uh, a lot of his argument on the experience we've seen so far with the light sport community and his awareness that a lot of people flying on light sport privileges are older pilots who've chosen not to renew a medical and they're flying, you know, compatible aircraft. And wow, there's no history, no incidents, no uh, accidents or events in the LSA uh, pilot population related to medical incapacitation. So he finds that fairly compelling and then points out all the money the FAA and DOT would save out of their budget if they did away with all the support mechanism that goes into uh, logging and tracking and approving medical certificates and taking the applications and communicating with the doctors and yada, 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 yada. It makes so damn much sense on that level that you know that it'll be ignored. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Real quickly, you know, I'm sorry, Jeb, go ahead. No, no, no. Um, So uh, uh, Wartowski is an example, and I I would imagine that the managers of the other two small airports in the D.C. area are are, are similar. But Wartowski seems to be more than a little bit heroic to me um, in the efforts that he has uh, uh, put on to uh, keep this airport open and and vital. And uh, um, Jeb, do you know him only through the, the mailing list or do you know him personally? I know him personally. He seems like a character in a good way. He what, is. What's he like? He um, one of the smartest guys in the room. Um, he he made his his uh, money uh, as a twenty year old. Uh, he invented a couple of uh, medical devices. Uh, he was a, something of a prodigy at that age. Uh, bought the Potomac Airfield uh, with the proceeds. Uh, learned to fly helicopters, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, 9/11 happened shortly after he bought the air uh, bought the airport, so he's been you know against his will kind of immersed in uh, uh, all of these very well. No, it wasn't it wasn't 9/11. It was the um, um, stock market crash in uh, in '87, um, as I recall, and that kind of um, um, uh, how should I put it without hurt him uh, a little bit hurt him a little bit financially. Let's put it that way. Uh, but he's he's you know stuck it out. He uh, uh, has a skymaster uh, that he flogs uh, uh, a good bit. Uh, so you know he's he's an active pilot. Uh, uh, has other you know business endeavors, etc. Um, uh, he calls himself the big cheese and, and often uh, signs his uh, newsletters as uh, Le Fromage Grand. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. I, I too, I too had hoped to get by there a couple times when I was passing through the area. I have not succeeded yet, but uh, I, I personally would urge anybody within the sound of our voice, uh, if you are in the D.C. area and you fly, um, after first making sure how you have all the proper clearances and training, um, go to Potomac Airfield and go to the other of these uh, these uh, small D.C. airports and, and buy some gas. Help these people out. And first go to the website because that's where you'll get all the information on how you can get through all the hoops and cross yeah, all the D's, dot all the I's so that you can fly yourself to Potomac. Right. If, if you're in the D.C. area, um, just for reasons of supporting these three airports, uh, you should definitely uh, go through the hoops to get your uh, secret decoder ring. And, and be able to legally operate in the flight restricted zone uh, that encompasses Potomac, it encompasses, encompasses uh, Hyde Field, the uh, Washington Executive, and the College Park, uh, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and and you in fact have one of these secret Dakota rings, I, so it can't, it can't be all that hard to get, right? Exactly. I mean, if they let me get one, <laughs> my God, think think of and, you know. The first message was, "Don't forget to drink your Ovaltine." <laughs> Oh, another pop culture reference. I like it. Um, so uh, check, out, check out the forums, folks. You'll figure out that, what that one's all about if you don't get it already. Let's see now. See, yeah, be careful out there um, if you're flying in the D.C. area, but do try and visit these airports and support them in any way you think is appropriate. This next item um, is is not an aviation um, uh, item, but it is important to people who listen to podcasts, and so I just want to drop it in here pretty quickly. Um, 
if you pay any attention at all to uh, technology and, and law in the United States these days, you know that our patent system is pretty broken. There are all sorts of crazy patents out there, and there are people who have no shame and are using these patents to collect basic what I characterize as extortion. That's my personal opinion, um, but are collect trying to collect uh, big fees uh, from people uh, in in the, who are doing things that they claim violate these or, or take advantage of these patents. Um, happens all the time in the software industry, happens all the time in the technology industry. I'm sure it happens in other industries as well. There is now someone out there who claims he has a patent on some of the aspects of doing podcasts, like the one that we do. And he is reaching out to various podcasters claiming that they have to pay him a license fee. I'm not sure if it's him or her, but this organization to pay a license fee if they are going to continue to do their podcast. We have not heard from this person at this time. I hope we never hear from this person, but others are hearing from this person, and uh, it's it's just a thing, and it's getting very close to home. And so uh, I would urge our listeners uh, to look into this matter and to ultimately contact your elected representatives to urge them to participate in patent reform and try and get these patent laws fixed. Um, we'll put a link in our uh, in our uh, show notes. Uh, I happen to be looking at an article from the boingboing.net website called Shield Act, uh, a bill to stop patent trolls. Um, and the Shield Act is something that is in, under consideration right now. Um, and I would urge our listeners to learn about the SHIELD Act, decide what you think, and then contact your representatives. Truly, I don't know what would happen if someone contacted us and said that we owe them, I don't know what, you know, even $1,000, $100. I'm not sure if we'd be able to continue this podcast. So we need to do something about this. Anything you guys want to add to that? This is the tip of the iceberg. Um, for patent trolls, there's uh, all kinds of, of nefarious things going on out there, um, and it's not so much a matter of of uh, being in the wrong relative to um, whether there's a, a patent in effect that uh, uh, you should be paying royalties on. Uh, it's a matter of uh, defending oneself. Uh, against a lawsuit, um, even if you're in the right, it can cost thousands, perhaps millions of dollars to to go to court and to litigate something like this. Um, when the the uh, plaintiff in such a suit, all you have to do is is push the uh, screw uh, UCAP button on their keyboard yep. uh, to, to generate more files, and and uh, we can't. There's no way we could do that. There's no way we could defend against that, and. Um, we're not the only ones out there. No, this is there. There are are much deeper pocket organizations that are being attacked this way that are just choosing to pay the uh, the license fee, even though they judge it to be unfair because it's cheaper to pay the license fee than it is to defend what's right. So we need these laws, all right. And uh, again, I urge listeners to look into this. Um, the Boing Boing article that I referred to contains a link to the, the EFF, the Electronic Freedom Foundation, and their uh, take on this whole. Thing. Thing, which includes an easy page for you to uh, send a message to your elected representative. So, um, again, I urge you. David, anything you want to add? Fight, fight, fight. Yeah. Yep. What's the story with this guy who flew an airplane from Guam to Jacksonville? He's my hero. <laughs> what did he say? Seriously. First of all, if you... I, all right. So, 
this is not unheard of. I've always called attention to the fact that I interviewed a couple of Australians a long time ago at Oshkosh who jumped in their bonanza with relatively little, uh, uh, you know, uh, advanced planning and flew from, from Australia to Oshkosh. Uh, it involved, uh, uh, you know, handheld gas cans and hand pumps for moving fuel around. Um, but assuming I believe them, and I do, uh, they made it. So it can be done. This guy flew what kind of airplane from Guam? This is a Lancer 4, uh, non-pressurized. And, and if the story that I'm reading is correct, he flew nonstop from Guam to Jacksonville, Florida. Now, correct, where's Guam? Is, in, is Guam in the South Pacific or the it's Pacific? the other side of the Dateline. Yeah, in, so it's in, out in the Pacific. <laughs> so just for starters, why did he not stop in San Diego? I just don't... This does. <laughs> well, no, it gets better than that because... What happened? Uh, this airplane wasn't built on Guam, okay? It was flown to Guam. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it was... They, fly they, back. They flew it from uh, the, the former Grissom Air Force Base in Indiana. So this was some sort of spawning ritual, is what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, they flew it nonstop from Indiana to Honolulu. Uh-huh. Okay? And then flew it from Honolulu to Guam. Okay. And then flew it from Guam to Jacksonville. Nonstop. It was a 36-hour flight. Yeah, I know, huh? Crazy. Okay. Uh, it's, uh, okay. And, and this was... It's 30-something hours. I mean, it may not have been a six, but it was no, 39 hours, according to this, this article. 39 hours. It was he and his wife. He, the guy's retired American Airlines captain. Um, built the Lance Air Force Custom to hold a lot of fuel, quote-unquote. Um, and uh, this, is, this is how they intend to, to use it. Uh, the, uh, this particular flight supposedly set a record for the uh, uh, weight class uh, that was previously held by, by someone flying a Malibu. Um, and um, bada bing, bada boom. It said he had six gallons of gas remaining. When they landed at at, uh, at okay, Delta. see now, my now, point six, exactly. Six, six yeah. gallons, six gallons is forty five minutes or so at the power <laughs> well, settings. There you go. <laughs> and they're over. They literally flew over the continental United States to get to Jacksonville. So they had plenty of of you know places to land and, and stop and you know, all this kind of thing. At least uh, on the last half. At least the, at least the last half, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, this was to me. This is a um, a big deal. This guy's really my hero. Yeah. Uh, okay. There was a post. Where was it? Um, there's there's there was some more info. Oh, there's a there's a post on uh, on EAA's website. An article about this uh, this flight um, said that uh, didn't use any oil on the flight. Uh, it was a custom built engine. Didn't use any oil. Uh, carried 300-some-odd gallons at takeoff. 390-something gallons, I think, at takeoff. Uh, landed with six. <laughs> well, that's pretty good flight planning. What's that percentage-wise, I, I wonder? Uh, it's like, I'm, I'm betting some, there were totalizers going oh, oh, yeah. to the, to the yeah. nth degree. Well, what, what was his route uh, after he reached the west coast of the United States? Was he over land or was he over the Gulf? No, he was over land. Okay, so he had a lot of options, is what I'm saying. He wasn't flying a pure, and there's a uh, uh, there's a flight aware track on him. Initially, the track stopped somewhere around Mississippi, uh, but apparently, flight aware went back in and, and filled in the gaps in the in the track. Um, 
but he, he didn't fly a pure uh, great circle. The great circle route would have taken him um, into the North Pacific and and come down. Uh, I don't know through uh, um, Oregon, Washington area, something like that, and then, right. and then you know curving back into Jacksonville. Uh, it wasn't a, a pure great circle route, but it was pretty close. Yeah. Well, he didn't need to fly the great circle because he knew he had fuel to spare, right? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I'm sure that the last couple of hours they were. It's yeah, EAA.org. It's the uh, one of the top stories on the uh, um, on the homepage. Um, guy's name is uh, Bill, Bill Harrell. Bill Harrelson. Yeah. Bill Harrelson of uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia. Uh, in numbers, November 6th, Zulu, Quebec. Um, and let's see, we're talking about uh, 38 hours, 29 minutes, uh, nonstop, 7,051 nautical miles. And he's your hero. He's my hero. There you go. Yeah. A bunch of episodes ago, uh, we talked about uh, a little airport in the uh, Vancouver, Washington area, Pearson Field, uh, that was uh, in a jam vis-a-vis uh, -vis its uh, proximity to Portland International Airport. Uh, apparently, aircraft on final for Portland or on approach for Portland um, were getting automated uh, proximity warnings from the aircraft in the pattern at Pearson. And uh, there were some pretty heinous uh, uh, restrictions proposed for Pearson Field in order to avoid these uh, proximity warnings, even though everybody admits there was actually no safety issue involved. It was just that it was setting off the uh, the equipment in the airliners. Uh, and we're looking at a story now that says, uh, this is where this is from GA News, uh, Pearson Field airspace issue resolved. Air, airspace operations at Pearson Field and Portland International Airport will remain unchanged thanks to the efforts of Washington and Oregon elected officials. Uh, local pilots groups and the FAA. So I won't go into this anymore, but I just wanted to kind of close the loop on that story that uh, that it appears that the right thing happened up there and uh, uh, calmer heads prevailed and they uh, figured it out. And uh, so that's good. That's good. We don't get yeah, an awful good. lot of, well, more often than not, we get the other kind of story in general aviation these days. And so it's nice that, that this worked out. And uh, maybe it'll be a, uh, you know, an example to other, other uh, uh, you know, regulators around the country that uh, you don't need more regulation david uh, another fifi fifi two little fifi no it wouldn't be little what's the story david son of fifi son of fifi <laughs> david you still there oh oh, oh yeah yeah so uh, fifi is uh, famously Podcast, the uh, you can't remember yeah doc 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 <laughs> Doc, Doc. We could call. Well, no, there, that's right. There is a Doc. That's right. Doc is the name of the. Some people call you Doc, and that's what you got me confused there for a second, David. Um, but uh, Doc is a is another B twenty nine that's not currently airworthy. What's the story? Well, this goes back about a decade when a, a uh, gentleman in business with a, a fondness for old airplanes discovered this old. B-29 languishing out in the Mojave Desert where it had been used for target practice uh, and was just going to rot and he bought it and arranged to uh, get some volunteer work and a place to restore it back where the airplane was originally built at Boeing, Wichita. And so Doc, which was part of a squadron 
of eight that were, you know, Cinderella, I'm sorry, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. All the airplanes were named after Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. This was Doc. Uh, Doc came back to Wichita uh, on various trucks and uh, uh, cargo and work began. And they've got a, a lot of the fuselage work done. Uh, restoring it, replacing parts, uh, renewing corroded areas. Uh, then the Boeing spun off Boeing Wichita. Spirit Aerosystems took it over. The economy tank room to work on it uh, was held up. Uh, a place where it would be exhibited was in question, and the guy who owned it had plans for it that didn't involve keeping it in Wichita, and it kind of lost momentum. Well, uh, a local group of businessmen have raised the money to buy the airplane, and uh, from Tony Mazzolini, the guy that rescued it from the Mojave in '98, uh, and now they're on a fundraiser. Uh, fundraising uh, uh, effort to come up with the about three million or a little better that they need to finish the job and get engines and turn it into another flying example of the best warplane technology to come out of World War II. Is this realistic? I mean, are they going to be able to? Can, I mean, can't an airplane be so far gone that it's just not going to be restored? No, oh, they're way them? past. They're way past that, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, it 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 needs uh, the outboard wing work finished and the control surfaces restored. Okay, uh, and the airframe is airworthy. Then it's a matter of getting the engines and uh, uh, getting the engines airworthy and hanging them back on and flying the bloody thing. Well, and and do, to your knowledge, do they think the engines are basically okay and they just need to be cleaned up, or do they need new engines? Well, they're going to overhaul the engines, okay, because they have people here that can do that. Yeah, good. <laughs> well, that'll be cool. I want to see that formation flight at uh, at uh, Sun and Fun or or, or Oshkosh. Now, yeah, in the end, I'll be surprised if the engines don't go down to one of the specialty shops down in like right. Mississippi. Uh, but they do have people that still work on those kind of engines here, just like some of the people that are that have been volunteering uh, their labor and their knowledge to restore Doc were on the line when Doc was built. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, that's just, that's so just they're cool. really interested in seeing it happen while they're still alive. That would be very cool. That's, that's yeah. just incredible. Yep. And, and, and Jack, to kind of sort of answer your question, it'd be kind of difficult or, or cost prohibitive with something as large and complicated as a B-29. But um, all you really need to restore an airplane is a data plate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I keep thinking about that Mooney around the corner from you, Jeb. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. like, you know, how much money would it take to restore that aircraft? Well, you know, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that's my point. No. So there you go. Well, there's no, there's no intrinsic value to that. Um, I mean, eventually we'll be drinking beer out of that airplane. Well, when or, it gets, or when it one, gets day, yeah. one day that will be the only remaining Mooney airframe in the world, and someone's going to apply a lot of money to get it flying again. Yeah, yeah. All that airplane is really doing is increasing the bauxite content of the soil around it. <laughs> uh, oh, that's hard, man. <laughs> another, I don't know if you've seen this airplane lately, David. It's, uh, you know, I buy that. I buy that easily. Um, well, the, the, the trick is if, 
you know, that's that's a steel tube cage yeah, for, the, for the luggage compartment <laughs> forward. Yeah. Hey, if it's in good enough shape, dude, uh, you could turn it into an apartment. That's uh, right. That's I don't right. know. Well, you know, you know, before the before the smoke clears these days, you know, you, there may be people living in that airplane. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I know. What was it? Uh, 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 the Satanic Mechanic one time. What did he? How did he describe that Mooney? He said something along the lines of, "The only thing I'll ever be good for again is setting on fire." And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. So, anyways. <laughs> The last thing I've got on my list here is uh, to uh, report uh, a follow-up on a story that we talked about, again, some episodes ago, about the student pilot who uh, got pretty low on short final and clipped an SUV just before uh, reaching the touchdown zone of his runway. And, uh, and, and everybody involved was quite stunned by this, didn't see it coming. And uh, there was a lot of conversation about whether he was too low or in the whole situation. Um, but the follow-up I want to make here is at the time this student pilot claimed that he was done flying, um, that he did not want to continue with his training. Uh, he apparently uh, uh, you know, kind of calmed down and uh, in some weeks later decided that he did want to continue, went back into training, got whatever he needed, and recently earned his private ticket. So uh, this uh, this pilot, who uh, whose name I don't have, let's see if I have his name here. Um, this is a story uh, from AOPA. Uh, Student pilot Will Davis uh, is, uh, has gone on and uh, completed his uh, private pilot flight training. So we congratulate him on that, and we're glad that uh, that uh, you know that it didn't drive him away from flying. So that's pretty cool. Uh, you guys got anything else? Uh, anything shout out like? Uh, I, I just I just want to note that we're recording this on Pi Day. It is Pi Day. I know. I noticed that. Yes. Oh, really? That's yeah. right. Yeah. Three three one four, and uh, and in a couple of years it will be three one four one five, which will be very cool. People, all, the geeks will go nuts on that day. All right, the geeks will just go crazy. Okay, and uh, I was tickled by the fact to discover that yesterday was three one three one three, which I yeah, thought was palindrome. interesting. You know, palindrome. So, yeah. So, uh, anyways, yes, today is Pi Day, and uh, um, the big Pi Day is coming. So three one four one five is a prime number, isn't it? I don't. Not with a five in it, it won't be. <laughs> Thank you, guys. My good friends here, uh, Jeb Burnside, is a uh, freelance aviation writer and editor serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. You been working on anything fun, Jeb? Anything we can yeah, look for? Yeah, just, just put the, uh, the April issue of uh, Safety Back to Bed. Um, got a great uh, couple of articles in there. One is on uh, uh, climbing, uh, how we climb, why we climb, how we can climb. Uh, some guy by the name of uh, uh, Higdon, I think, wrote that. Mm-hmm. He must have been uh, climbing the walls. On yeah, the- it, it was one of those deals. Uh, another one on hand propping uh, by uh, Mike Hart, who's a listener. Um, and uh, another great article by Tom Turner, who's uh, uh, a regular on the magazine, uh, on uh, um, using the numbers that you'll see off your power gauges and your airspeed indicator and whatnot. And in uh, planning and setting up for uh, instrument approaches. So uh, uh, good issue all the way around, and uh, hats off to everybody who helped. Very cool. And where can people find you uh, on the Internet? Well, aviationsafetymagazine.com is a great place to start for the magazine itself. Uh, jeburnside.com is a personal website. I pop up occasionally on avweb and or aea.net, and uh, occasionally on the the Twitter machine and uh, the Facebook and on Twitter, you are what? Burnside J, right? Burnside J, yeah. yeah. 
And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Uh, other than what Jeb just mentioned, uh, what are you working on these days, David? Anything we can look at? Uh, got a piece uh, about to come out about the uh, uh, the potential perils of trying to put your airplane into a revenue operating situation. Uh, how easy it, it is to do that and run afoul of some regulations, uh, how it can cut into and compete with your own use, and uh, and whether or not it will actually make you enough money to make it worth the extra hassle, like 100-hour inspections instead of annual inspections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And That'll where can be, be... I'm sorry, go ahead. Air, world Aircraft Sales. And in general, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, avbuyer.com, which is where you can look up World Aircraft Sales, uh, Jeb's Aviation Safety Magazine.com, uh, AEA.net for avionics news. And if you're an NBAA member, you're reading some of my stuff, but you'd never know it. And on Twitter, you are what? Real Higdon. Real Higdon. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Real Higdon. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. I knew it. I just wanted to have, hear you say it. <laughs> And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, please check out my latest Kindle ebook, Around the Field, Volume 2, Stories About the People, Places, and Planes of the Oshkosh Fly-In. You can learn about that and all my other Kindle ebooks at Amazon.com slash author slash Jack Hodgson. And in general, learn more about me at JackHodgson.com, AroundTheField.net, and on Twitter, I am simply Jack Hodgson. Big thanks to Jeff Ward for his help with our show notes and in the forums. We should get Jeff, by the way, we should get Jeff to come on the podcast. Um, we probably should have for many reasons over the years. But what made me think of it just now is that in addition to being a, a, a traditional aircraft pilot, a Piper pilot mostly, I understand, um, he is very active in the world of radio-controlled aircraft and is uh, uh, seems pretty knowledgeable about the rules that apply to radio-controlled aircraft and thus might conceivably apply, one would think, up to uh, UAVs, at least initially. So uh, I'm going to ask Jeff if he's interested. Also, take a few minutes to uh, check out ECHO, the general aviation online media channel at uncontrolledairspace.com slash ECHO. And don't forget to check out the rest of the UCAP website. You can chat with us directly and with many of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. You can see who's doing what on the new ratings webpage of fame and much, much more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you were going to say something? Live long time, love life by going flying because time spent flying's not subtracted from your lifespan you know and that's enough talking let's go flying bye there we go thank you <laughs> thank you